Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in his plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. So we are right now, as it stands, less than 48 hours from the beginning of a new year. And uh, I don't know about you, I know for me, it is a, a time of year that I like to make an assessment of uh, what has happened over the past year and kind of make some adjustments, um, things moving forward. And just by show of hands, is there anyone here by any chance that has set a goal or desired to make a change, something this year that you're looking at and saying, yes, this year I am going to? Any resolutions here? I see uh, there is a few. Um, and that, that, this is a great thing. And God, I think, Part of uh, in ordaining times and seasons, he has given us this amazing opportunity to be able to do this in this way. Um, you know, a, a lot of us, we want to end some bad habits. A lot of us, we want to introduce maybe some new things. Oftentimes, we resolve that we're going to exercise, move a little bit more. Maybe we're going to manage our time and our schedules a little bit better, a little bit differently. Maybe improve on some relationships or set some financial goals or career goals, make some changes, you know, and uh, this is kind of the time of year that we do those kinds of things. We want to make our lives uh, better. And so uh, in light of that and where we are, what I'd like to do this morning is to give you something um, that you can sow into your thoughts as you think about where you've been and think about where you're going that maybe will help you uh, in doing that and finding success in the things that you uh, endeavor to see happen in your life uh, rather than to see them just fall by the wayside. Now, it comes from, I confess, a very uh, somewhat depressing passage of Scripture as we look at this uh, church of Laodicea. You'll notice in, in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, you'll notice that the, the chapters are almost exclusively red-letter chapters which means that Jesus is the one who is speaking. And what he is doing in this portion of Scripture is that he is basically giving an assessment to seven churches that existed in Asia Minor during the first century while the Apostle John was still alive. And some of those churches, he had good things to say, and they were doing well. And to others, he had not so good things to say, and they weren't doing so well. And the one that we're looking at this morning is probably the worst of the seven. And, uh, and the reason that I'm sharing it is not because I feel like we reflect that or that we need the, um, you know, the, the, the word of rebuke that Jesus brings to these people, but rather because the instruction that Jesus gives to them, I find it to be useful in my life and it's universally applicable. So you might be doing really well here this morning spiritually, all cylinders are firing with the Lord. God's going to speak to you this morning, and you might not be doing so well in the Lord, and he's still going to speak to you uh, through this. And so, depressing passage, but a hopeful message this morning as we stand on the cusp uh, of 2019. And so, um, if you would look with me at verse 14, as Jesus addresses the church in Laodicea, the city of Laodicea, he says this, verse 14, it says, and unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, so the messenger of the church, he says, write... These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now, in every one of these seven addresses that Jesus gives to these churches, he identifies himself in a very unique yet specific way. He addresses himself in a manner that is fitting with the message that he wants to give to them. And so he says different things to different churches. And I find hope 
in the introduction or the, um, the, 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 the way that Jesus identifies himself to this church and that he begins by calling himself the Amen. And the reason why that's hopeful to me is because the Amen kind of insinuates the ending. When do we say amen? It's at the end of a prayer or at the end of a point that someone makes. And we want to emphasize the period by saying an amen, whether it's prayer or point that's being made. And so when Jesus calls himself the amen, he's pointing to himself as being the one who's there at the end. And I find that hopeful because what he's going to say to the church essentially here, these Christians, is that they're not doing so well in the place that they're at. But being that he's the amen and that he sees things from the vantage point of the end, coupled with the fact that he is speaking to them means that he knows they're going to do okay. Because if they're not going to do okay, then he stays silent because he already sees the end. They're going to fall off the rails, so there's no purpose in me talking to them. Jesus doesn't waste time. And so by calling himself the end, he knows that they're going to make the adjustments and that they're going to be overcomers in the long haul. He also calls himself the beginning, meaning that he was there at the start, and he calls himself the faithful and true witness, which speaks of what he does along the way, that he is faithful and true to the promises that he made and to uphold those that belong to him, but that he's also the witness that sees and is aware of what's going on with every person at every step of the way. And so he addresses himself as the beginning, the initiator, the ending, the one who sees the finish, and the faithful and true witness that is there faithfully along the way, aware of every moment of what's going on. That's how Jesus addresses himself. And then he begins his message by telling them the condition that he sees that they're in. It's that great moment of truth where the contestant is standing before the judge and is about to hear the assessment of how the judge thinks they're doing. And listen to what Jesus says in verse 15. He says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth or spit you out of my mouth. So here's the condition that Jesus sees that they're in. He draws upon an illustration of food. And essentially what he says to them is he says, listen, you guys got through the door. You're in, but you're in and you're in a position where your destiny is kind of pending. You're in a place where you're either going to go deeper or you're going to go out. But you're, you're not going to stay where you are. And Jesus says that my instinct right now is not deeper, but out the way that you're going to go. And what's amazing to me is the reason that Jesus gives for that reaction that he is having. It has nothing at all to do with the flavor. In other words, he doesn't have a problem with their personality. He doesn't have a problem with who they are as people. It isn't the flavor that's in his mouth that is uh, making him disgusted in this whole thing. It isn't even the texture. I know for me, sometimes something can taste great, but if it has the wrong texture, uh-uh, ain't doing it. My wife made something with pumpkin once, like the inside of a pumpkin. I don't, it didn't get far enough to know if it even tasted good because, I mean, if you ever put your hand in a pumpkin, you get the idea of the texture, couldn't handle the texture. But Jesus didn't have a problem with the texture. 
that is the style of who they were and what they were doing. Like that didn't bother him at all as a church or the way that they were representing themselves as a church or as Christians individually, stylistically. It didn't bother him at all. It wasn't even ingredients. It isn't like, you know how sometimes you, you, know, you, you eat something and it's almost good, but there's like one or two things in it that you're like, that doesn't belong there. You know, like when someone just puts something totally, it doesn't belong in something, you know, like my wife, sometimes she likes to, she calls it zest. She puts like pieces of orange peel in something. Orange peel doesn't belong in food. That's why it's on the outside of the orange. It's to protect the food. If you throw away the peel, you don't put the peel in food. It doesn't belong in anything ever for any reason at all. And you would think that Jesus maybe, like thinking about these people, like there's certain things maybe that have gotten into their lives that don't belong. You know, like you're almost good, but there's a little bit of orange peel and, and I can't take that flavor. That's not it. It doesn't bother him. He's, even some of the things that are go, in, in their lives, like that's not the reason why Jesus is, is intolerant of it. It has everything to do with temperature. It's not flavor. It's not texture it's not ingredients it's temperature that's what's bothering jesus and he says to them that you are lukewarm and what that means is that something has been sitting around too long it means that it has become complacent it is right in the middle the halfway point between two extremes it's like that one piece of sushi that you see on the sushi buffet line that was there the first two times that you went through the line, and it's still there the third time you go through the line, and you know you don't dare touch that lukewarm piece of sushi because you don't know how long it's been sitting there. It's complacent. Now, I looked up the word complacent in the dictionary, and, and here's the definition, the Bible dictionary. It means a condition marked by self-satisfaction, especially when accompanied by an unawareness of actual deficiencies. To put that in layman's terms, you think you're okay, but you're messed up. That's what it means biblically to be complacent. And that's the assessment that Jesus gives to these Christians is that you have become complacent. You think you're okay, but you're messed up. Now, the way that Jesus makes these Christians aware of their deficiencies, because remember, when you're complacent, you think you're okay. And so the way that Jesus lets them know that they're not okay is by revealing to them six symptoms that they will be able to self-identify and then realize that, wow, I'm really not doing as good as I thought. And he gives them all six of those symptoms in verse 17. He says this. He says, because you say I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and you don't know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Six things Jesus says as conditions of this complacency. Number one is that they are self-deceived. Do you see in the verse there where it says that you say you are, but you are? And in other translations, it says you think but you are. You think you are this, but you are this. It's a condition of self-deception meaning that they have gauged the quality of their spiritual condition based on something that doesn't tell the true tale. For them, they looked at their outwardness, their wealth, their health, their physical conditions, 
and they made the connection to the spiritual and said, well, I must be doing good spiritually because I'm doing good physically. Because everything outwardly in my life is as I would want it, that must mean that everything on the inside is going good as well. And Jesus is saying that is not a good way to measure because you can't determine spiritual health based upon physical well-being. They were probably evaluating based upon what other people saw and thought about their lives rather than what God saw and thought about their life. And therefore, they were allowing their appearance outwardly to define their success in life. And God says, you're wrong. You're deceived. You're not doing as well as you think you are. The second thing that he says there is he uses the word miserable. And what that is, is it's a lack of inner joy. And the idea is, is Jesus is saying, look, you have everything that you need You have everything that you want, but yet you're not experiencing joy. You're not enjoying your life. That's a mark and a sign of your condition. You look at everything you have and you think, I should be happy, but I'm not happy. Why is it? I'm lacking joy. Jesus says you're miserable. The third thing he says is he uses the word poor. And the idea behind poor, when Jesus says you're poor, is not speaking of your financial situation because their financial situation was really good. What he's saying is that they had no leverage with God in their spiritual life, meaning that they weren't connecting with God. They didn't have leverage in their prayer life where God was answering their prayer and they were sensing the supernatural going on in their physical existence. Their relationship with God was poor. And Jesus says, there's a lack of connection. You're not connecting with God. He says, fourthly, that they are blind. And that is that they lack vision. Scripturally, when you read about blindness, often it's not speaking of the physical condition, though sometimes it is, but you know when it is and when it isn't. But often it's speaking of the spiritual condition of not having a vision for your life, that you're not aware of your surroundings, of what's going on around you spiritually in the unseen realms. You don't have a vision for your path, where you've come from, where you are, or where you're going. You're, in a sense, wandering And you don't have a vision for your future, meaning that there's no goals, there's nothing set before you that you're chasing after, but you're just wandering, you're blind, you have no vision for your life. He says, fifthly, that you are naked. And the idea behind nakedness in this context of the Bible is not physical, but rather it talks about the exposing of shameful things meaning that the small sins and compromises that they had allowed along the way were now growing to the place where they were beginning to split the seams of their coverings and people were beginning to see that, hey, maybe you're not as what I thought you were. And it's beginning to be shown, maybe by family members or maybe even by other people, compromises are slipping through the cracks. And then the sixth thing, which is probably the worst of all, and though it's not written specifically, it is very clearly implied, and that is that God is not pleased with them in this condition. Now be very careful here and listen to what I say if you've tuned me out. It does not say that God doesn't love them. In fact, on the contrary, if you look at verse 19, Jesus says to them, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. So he actually affirms to them the fact that he loves them with the kind of love that God loves people with, which is a supernatural, unconditional, unstoppable, fierce love. He loves them, but at the same time he loves them, he tells them, I'm not pleased. 
Now, I can relate to that as a parent because I absolutely love my kids more than I ever thought I could love a human being. But sometimes I'm not well pleased. I love them, but I'm not pleased. And what I've discovered as a parent is that there isn't a more motivating force for change in a person's life than when someone truly loves them and that same someone is not pleased. Because to sin against love hurts. And so Jesus is not pleased, but he is very much in love with this church. Another thing that I find interesting in, in this concept of him not being pleased with these people is that if you look at the reason that he's not pleased, it has nothing to do with anything that he himself gets out of the relationship. And it has everything to do with their enjoyment and experience in the relationship. And you look at the things that he says to them, it doesn't bother Jesus. Jesus is not naked. Jesus isn't poor. Jesus isn't miserable. But the people are, and he's hurt. He's upset. He's grieved because they're not walking in the fullness of life they could be walking in if they were living and walking the right way. And thus he tells them they are in this state where they are complacent, and these are the symptoms of it. Now, how did they get into a state of complacency? Because no doubt they didn't start there. Nobody starts their relationship with God in a place where they're hearing things like this from him. When we start, we're on fire, man. Everything's humming the way it should be. Our prayer life is humming. Everything is the way it should. How did they get like this? The insight's given to us in verse 20 where Jesus says this. He says that I stand at the door and knock. Meaning that the blessings of God that had come into their lives his prosperity outwardly, the healings that had made them healthy physically, all of the things that he had done for them had slowly crept into center stage in the heart, and Jesus, by degrees, was pushed out to the margins of their life to the point where he has to say, hey, I'm not even really in you anymore. You've been so filled by other things, I'm out here on the margins trying to get back in to my rightful place. That's the condition that you're in. Now, you might be here this morning, and you might say, yeah, that describes me, all of those things, at least to some degree. In fact, I don't think any of us here, in all sober honesty, can say that we're doing just great in, in all of those things. We live in affluent, affluent place. We lead complicated and full lives. You know, there's a little bit of this in me, at least. I can speak for myself. And so you may be here saying, yeah, that's me. You might be here and you say, no, it's not me. I'm actually doing really quite well spiritually right now. God's doing something in my life in this season. I'm really enjoying his presence. Things are as they should be. Listen, what Jesus says next applies universally. No matter where you are on that spectrum, I'm doing really, really bad. I'm doing really, really good. Because what Jesus does next is that he gives them the remedy. And it's an equally applicable remedy that every one of us can grab a hold of. And on the cusp of a new year, as we're making decisions and deciding what we want to do, what goals we want to set, where we want to see our lives, Jesus gives us three things in verse 18 that if we do them, our lives will be defined by what he calls in verse 21, overcoming. That we will overcome. We will sit with him in his throne and we'll have a full reward and a full crown. So what are they? What are the three things 
that Jesus this morning would counsel you to do in 2019? Notice with me in the verse. He says this. He says, I counsel you. Man, isn't that cool to receive counsel from Jesus? That's got to be a long line to get in the office, right? Get it from the top, right? He says, I counsel you to, first of all, number one, buy of me, buy from me gold that's been tested in the fire that you may be rich. Then number two, and also buy from me white raiment or white clothing, white garments that you may be clothed or covered. And then number three, he says, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. So Jesus gives three things that he calls us to do, meaning that there's action required on our part in order to see these things happen in our lives that we might be where we're supposed to be. He tells us, and I take them in reverse order, first of all, that we're to anoint our eyes with ISAV. Now, when I first read that, I'm puzzled by it because I think, well, listen, I've been to a lot of shopping centers and a lot of stores, and I have never seen a kiosk or a booth or a place in any of them where Jesus is selling this ISAV. And if I could get it, I would go there. And if I knew where to buy it, I would do it. But what is Jesus talking about when he says, buy from me, I salve and anoint your eyes that you might see? What does that mean? And what am I to do if he's calling me to do it? Well, I'm not going to give you my opinion. If you don't know what something means in the Bible, where do you think the best place to look would be? The Bible, right? The Bible interprets the Bible. So if we take this to the Bible, we say, Lord, what exactly are you talking about? It brings us to John chapter 9. And in John chapter 9, there was an, an episode in the ministry of Jesus where he was walking with his disciples, and as they came to a place, they saw a man who was blind. He couldn't see. And the disciples, seeing this man, they asked Jesus the question. They said, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that made him blind. In other words, they looked at it and they said, this must be either the consequence of something that he did or his parents did, or he's the victim of something that someone else did to him. Well, there's a reason for this blindness. And so they asked Jesus, what's the reason this man is blind? And Jesus responds by saying, no, it's neither of those two things. This isn't a consequence of something someone else has done or, or that he's done in his own life or he's a victim of something. He says, here's the reason for it, Jesus said. He said that the works of God might be manifested or revealed or made known in him. In other words, what Jesus says is this. Listen, guys, you got this all wrong. This isn't punishment for sin, but rather his blindness is in his life because God is doing something in his life and this blindness is a part of revealing it or bringing it forward. Do you know that not every problem that you face or issue that you have in your life is the consequence of something you did wrong along the way? And maybe it's not even the consequence of what someone else did, like your parents or your witch doctor grandparents or whoever, whatever happened generations ago that you feel like it's their fault. Sometimes the things that 
we struggle with the most have nothing to do with any sin or error. It has everything to do with the fact that God is trying to do a work in our lives and he's using those conditions as the means of manifesting that work. That's what Jesus said was going on in the life of this blind man. And then Jesus says in John chapter 9, verse 5, listen, he says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, you, at first you'd think that phrase doesn't fit in this segment. Why does Jesus call himself the light of the world? Here's why. Because every blindness issue is a light issue. Light gives sight. And so either there's a problem with the eye that light isn't passing through it, and thus there's blindness, or there's a problem with the light, and the eye works fine, but it can't see because there's no light. And so Jesus says, listen, I'm the solution to the blindness problem. And then he gives a living sermon, a living illustration of how this works in the life of his people. In verse 6, it says, And when he had thus spoken, he spit on the ground, and he made clay with the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man. Now, you can't go anywhere and buy that salve. Avino ain't got nothing on Jesus' spit mixed with a little bit of clay. He, I'm sure the blind man would prefer the Avino, but he's going to like the effect of what Jesus does better. It says in verse 7 that Jesus then said to him, Go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent, meaning Jesus sent him to go do something, and when he went his way, therefore, and he washed, and he came again seeing. And then when he was questioned about the episode, he says in verse 11, he answered and said, a man that is called Jesus made clay, and he anointed my eyes, and he said, go wash in the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went to the pool and washed, and I received my sight. And so here's what happens. There's a man who lacks vision. He has no vision. He can't see at all. He has an encounter with the light of the world, the one who can give vision exclusively, the one who knows the beginning, the middle, and the end. Jesus comes and anoints his eyes freely with something that only he himself can provide and then gives a command that he's to go and do something. For this man, it's go wash the clay out of your eyes. And as the man went and obeyed what Jesus told him to do, he came again with vision he could see for the first time in his life. And thus it is for you and for me. If you lack vision for your life, the way that we anoint our eyes with ISAV is that we go to the light of the world, the one that we have access to 24-7, and we ask him, Lord, open my eyes. I've been wandering. I am floundering. I don't know where I am. I don't know where I'm going, and I don't feel like I'm on track. I don't have vision right now for my life. Would you please make some of that clay and put it upon my eyes? And the Bible says that when we ask anything according to his will, he does it. Now, here's the kicker, is that he gave this man something to do. He gave him a direction to go that didn't really make sense. I mean, the pool of Siloam had nothing to do with a medical issue of the eyesight. But it's what Jesus sent him to do. It gives me a little hope that it made sense in the fact that you've got to wash that clay out of your eyes, right? Like, you're not going to see with, you know, whatever that is on you. But Jesus told him where to go. And he did it, and when he came again, he came seeing. And so, as you go to Jesus, he may say to you, listen, you lack vision for your life, and here's why. And it might not even make sense to you, but it might be go reconcile with the person that you're bitter with right now. 
It may be pay off the debt that is sinking you in slavery right now. It may be go buy something. It, it could be anything that Jesus could say to you unique to your situation. But whatever it is that he tells you, you do the thing that he says, no matter what it costs. And, and you know, by the way, that's why it says buy from me. Because though we can't buy anything from Jesus with money, he doesn't take our money. He doesn't want our money. He doesn't need our money. Anytime we're going to buy something from Jesus, it absolutely costs us something. It might cost us a, a habit. It might cost us some pride to humble ourselves. It might, it's going to cost. It might cost some repentance, a change of lifestyle, whatever it might be. But you do the thing that he says, and you will come again seeing. Jesus gives the counsel. The second thing that Jesus tells them to do, this church, these Christians in Laodicea, is he says to them that they're to buy from him white raiment, white clothing, that the shame of their nakedness does not appear. Now, again, I look at that and I say, Jesus, are you Gucci? I mean, like, where do you buy clothes that Jesus made? And what if they don't look very good? I mean, I do know the styles and they wore robes back then, but I don't know. Like, what does it mean to buy clothes from Jesus to be covered? Well, spiritually, scripturally, the answer is given to us in Revelation chapter 19, verse 8. And it says this. It says that to her, that is the church, was granted that she should be arrayed in fine, clean linen, white, for the fine linen is, listen, the righteousness of the saints. Now, here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, listen, you can't provide your own righteousness. Because if you try to cover up your sinfulness with your coverings of hypocrisy or appearances or whatever, those seams are going to rip and everything that you are is going to spill out all over the place. The girdle's going to break, so to speak. But the righteousness that you can get from me is not a righteousness that you can earn. It's a righteousness that I give you. Now, Jesus gives us two sets of clothes, underwear and outerwear. The underwear is the salvation experience. When we come to him because of what he did on the cross and we put our faith in him laying down his life and taking the penalty and punishment for our sins upon himself and we trust him to be the substitution for our hell and we receive by faith his heaven, he gives to us the underwear of righteousness. He takes away our sin. He casts it as far as the east is from the west. But there's another form of clothing that Jesus gives us. It's shown to us in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 22. And just listen to what Paul says. He says that you should put off or take off, disrobe, unclothe yourself concerning the former lifestyle, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. In other words, there's two options that you have every day when you wake up. Jesus lays out two sets of clothes. Well, he lays out one. The other one is already there. One is your old self, your old life, your old habits, your old, old and own ways. You can put that on every day. Paul says, take that off. And in place of it, put on the new man, the clothes that Jesus provides that are laid out right next to it. Now, here's your homework. Is you can go home and read from that mark in Ephesians 4 and read the rest of the book of Ephesians. And you know what it is, essentially? It's just a description of your wardrobe that he lays out. 
Paul just starts to say, he says, put off lying and put on truth-telling. Put off stealing and put on honest hard work and provision. Put off lust and fornication and put on true agape love. And he just goes on and on and on. Put off corrupt words out of your mouth and put on edifying and graceful speech. And he just gives it to you. Here, here's your choice every day. Put off the old, put on the new. And here's the counsel that Jesus gives to you and me. He says, listen, dress for success. Buy from him white raiment. It's going to cost you your old raiment because you can't wear two sets of clothes. Put off the old and then take what he's provided. The righteousness of salvation, underwear, and then the righteousness of an empowered life, the outerwear that he gives. The third word of counsel that he gives to this group of Christians in Laodicea that needed some correction is he counsels them to buy from him gold that's been tried in the fire, tested by fire, that they might be rich. Now again, Jesus is not on the corner of a New York City street opening up his vest and displaying a whole you know, sleeve full of bling, you know, like come and buy gold. That's not the idea here on things. But spiritually, what is Jesus talking about? When it comes to my life and what I do with my life, what does it mean for me to buy from him gold that's been tested in the fire? The answer is given to us again in 1 Peter chapter 1. And I want you to listen to what Peter says because Peter unlocks the answer for us, what it means and how we can do it. Remember, this is a do. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again, that means we've been born again, unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. For what reason? Verse 4, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you. You who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now pause right there and we'll read on. Two more verses in just a minute. The theme of what Peter is saying here has to do with our salvation and our inheritance. He says we've been born again, living hope, for an eternal inheritance, which is in heaven already reserved and preserved by God for you. That's the theme of what Peter's saying here. Now, watch what he goes on to say in verse 6. He says, wherein this hope in this future that you have. You greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. That means that you're struggling with all kinds of different tribulations, trials, temptations, and struggles. You have a hope, you have an inheritance, you have a future in heaven, but right now you're struggling because of the difficulties you're going through in life. Now, here's where those two things reconcile in me in verse 7. Watch this. That the trial of your faith, the testing of your faith, the proving of the value of your profession, of what you believe, what you say you believe, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tested with fire, might be found unto praise, honor, and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. 
So the theme is your inheritance. That's our hope. But the struggle and the trial that you're going through right now, the trial of your faith is necessary. He uses the words need be. It's needed right now in order to, listen, in order to secure with fullness your inheritance. In other words, God is using the trials, tribulations, and difficulties that you're going through right now in order to prepare you for the inheritance he has for you in heaven. And the two things are linked. Difficulty on earth and my capacity and ability to handle what he has ordained for me in heaven. So how do my trials translate into gold? He gives the answer at the end of verse 7. Notice what he says. He says that it might be found, listen, unto praise honor, and glory. Everybody say those three words with me. Ready? Praise, honor, and glory. Say it louder than the first service, please. Praise, honor, and glory. Good. You guys are way louder than the first service on that. What does that mean? That my trials are found with praise, honor, and glory. Well, the opposite of that is that my trials are found with complaining. My trials are found with griping. My trials are found with bitterness. My trials are found with rebellion. Lord, I, I'm not going to go through this. I rebuke this trial. I don't want this trial in my life. I hate this trial. I confess it out of my life. Praise means I give thanks for it. That I'm praising God in spite of the difficulty that I'm going through. He looks at that and he says, that's gold. He says not only praise, but honor. What is honor? Honor is the way that we deal with God when we're going through heavy trials. Oftentimes I'll counsel couples uh, that they go through a train wreck in their marriage. Maybe there's been an affair or maybe there's been some kind of a really deep wound that might be the end of the marriage. And I'll talk to both sides and we'll see where, what we have to build with and where we have to go. And one of the things that I will always say to both the male and the female in that situation is I will say, make sure that as long as you have a ring on your finger, by that I mean that you're not divorced legally, that you give honor to your spouse nevertheless. Meaning you don't slander him, you don't trash her, you don't complain, you don't do it. Why? Because you don't know yet if God might put this thing back together. You don't see the end of the story yet. And because you don't see the end of the story, you honor that person all the way through until the end. The same idea when we handle our trials with honor. It means that we don't slander God. We don't say, well, God's dealt unfairly with me. God has dealt me something that is completely unreasonable and completely out of the boundaries of what any Christian should ever have to go through. This is unfair. This is wrong. We don't do that. We honor God in the midst of it, which means that we patiently endure the trial and we give God what we call the benefit of the doubt. Do you know what the benefit of the doubt means? I actually looked it up. The benefit of the doubt means a favorable judgment in the absence of full evidence. Meaning, I don't know why this is happening, how it's going to turn out, or what good could ever come from it. But I'm giving God a favorable judgment that he is good, that he is faithful, and that I'm going to give thanks for this someday, even though it doesn't make sense now. The pain doesn't make sense of what God says it is, but I'm going to trust him in it. I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. I'm honoring God in it. And then he says, glory, and glory is weight or substance, meaning that I am going to wait 
and see what good, glorious thing God is going to do and add to my life through the trial that I'm going through right now. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, the apostle, great apostle Paul says these words. He says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. In other words, God is using the tribulations and the trials of our lives to add something to us, to add substance, value, and weight to our lives to prepare us for something that's yet to come. But do you know what the irony is? This is one of those ironies of life that just makes you want to kick something. Is that as soon as you figure something out, you don't have to do it anymore. I mean, think about it. As soon as you figured out high school, you graduated. You, you got it down. You're like, I can do this, and then it's over. You don't have to do it anymore. Then you finally figure out college. Okay, I understand the dynamics, and then you're done. You don't have to do that anymore. And then you become a parent. And you finally figure out how to be a parent and that it's all going to work out and your kids are gone. You've just sent off the last one. You don't have to be a parent anymore. And then a career. You have a career and you finally figure it out and you say, you know what, I could probably do this for 10 more years, but it's time to retire and you don't have to do it anymore. And then life. You're 80-something years old and you're on your deathbed going, now I get it. And then you croak and you die and it's all over. And you think, what kind of a bad joke is this? You know, by the, by the time I finally figure out how to do something, I don't have to do it anymore. What gives? Here's what gives. Listen carefully. Every single thing that God allows you to go through in this life is preparing you for some expression of it that is not in this life. Which means that if you're going through something that doesn't make sense to you, you're going through that something because God sees on the other side of this existence in heaven, you're going to be doing something or you're going to be something and you're going to need what you went through on earth in order to function fully in that thing that he's prepared for you eternally. And thus, gold that we're called to buy from him is that when difficulty and tribulations and trials and temptations come our way, and we handle them, and they are found with praise and honor and glory, God says, good. Now you're buying gold. You'll have a full reward. And here's the outcome. He tells us in verse 21, back in Revelation chapter 3, he says, to them that overcome, meaning you do these things, and you become an overcomer. He says, I will also give to him to sit with me in my throne. What does that mean? Is that that crown that's being forged of gold is going to be placed upon your head. So here's the golden opportunity that every one of us has on the cusp of a brand new year, 2019. Is that we have 365 days that we can wake up each morning and we can go to the light of the world and we can say, Lord, this day today, I need vision for my life. I need you to open my eyes that I might understand my surroundings, that I might make sense of my path, and that I might have clear direction for my future where I'm going, Lord, open my eyes and give me something to do. Lord, I'm here. Speak. Your servant hears. We also have 365 opportunities to wake up and choose what we're going to put on. We can put on the old rags of our old ways, or we can say, Lord, today I want to be clothed with Jesus Christ. Let my words be edifying. Let my actions be righteous. 
Let my life and what goes on in my thought life be pure and pleasing in your sight. Lord, today I pray you'd clothe me. Give me the white raiments that you yourself provide. And we have 365 days worth of opportunity to handle the trials and challenges that will come and to give God the benefit of the doubt that he is working those things for our good and his glory in a way that we can't see or understand to give him glory and honor and praise in the midst of those trials and embrace them and say, Lord, thank you for trusting me enough to give me this trial because you know I need it for the sake of what's to come. And that's the opportunity that's before every one of us here. And you know what's amazing to me is just how fast this life actually goes. Bill O'Neill, brother in the church, um, he... He got married on the same day that I was born. He's not that old, you know, and I'm turning 40 on that day, and that day is very, 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 very soon. (laughs) Tomorrow. (laughs) And and the thing that bothers me about that is not this whole midlife crisis over the hill, like none, none of that. Here's what bothers me about it, is that every year of my 20s felt like a decade, but the entire decade of my 30s felt like a year. And I'm going, whoa, 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 where, where does this thing go? I heard a song, uh, I actually want to read this to you. I, I heard this song somewhere, and it's by Kenny Chesney. It's new. If you've heard it, shame on you. I'm judging you so hard right now. It's actually a pretty cool song. Listen to what he says. He said, I turned on the evening news, and I saw an old man being interviewed, turning 102 today. I asked him, what's the secret to life? He looked up from his old pipe, laughed and said, all I can say is don't blink. Just like that, you're six years old and you take a nap and you wake up and you're 25 and your high school sweetheart becomes your wife. Don't blink. You just might miss your babies growing like mine did, turning into moms and dads. Next thing you know, your better half of 50 years is there in bed and you're praying God takes you instead. Trust me, friend, a hundred years goes faster than you think, so don't blink. And it's true. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. We have this opportunity to embrace the things that God has given and to put our lives in the right trajectory, in the right place, and to see what he has before us. Stand with me as we close the service. You might be here this morning and you're thinking, you know what, my last 365 wasn't what I wish it was. And I'm certainly hoping to do better in the ones that are to come. And if I'm honest with myself, I have pushed Jesus a little bit to the margins and I've let other things come into my heart and crowd out my life in ways that I wish I didn't and I wish could be amended. I want you to know that Jesus is the amen who sees the end. And he wouldn't speak to your heart and put that conviction in you today if there wasn't hope for you to make this year better than last year. And even if last year was a good year, you can make this year better than the last year. And I would just ask you, if you're here this morning, you feel that conviction in your heart at all, maybe you would just raise your hand with me as I raise mine. And I'd like to just pray for you. Pray for your year to come and pray that these things might be done in your life. Father, we just thank you so much for your grace. We thank you for the cross and the blood that puts away the past, that makes it so that we can put away the things that are behind and we can press forward towards the things of the calling that you've given to us. 
And I pray for each of us here, Lord, that you would forgive the, the, the ways in 2018 that we failed. And I pray that you would empower us in a new and fresh way, that every one of us would feel your spirit right now filling us and preparing us, enabling us for what's to come. I ask you, Lord, for your people that you would give them vision for their lives every day. I pray that you'd help them to see the invisible, to know what can't be known in human terms. And Lord, that you would be with and bless each one. I pray also, Lord, that you would anoint every attitude and action. I pray that you would go before and undergird every trial. And I pray, Lord, that you would give your people a spiritually prosperous year. Father, help us. We need your help. So hear us, Lord, the contrition. Thank you for speaking to us this morning. Thank you for making your word so real. You can put your hands down. And there may be some here this morning that you've never come totally on the inside. Jesus really is on the outside and he's knocking because you've never even let him in to your life at all. You don't know him personally. I want you to know that everything that you long for in your heart finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ and him alone. Everything that you put into your life or add to your life thinking that it's going to bring, it only masks, it only temporarily fills. But when Jesus comes in, he's the answer. He's what you were made for. It's a God-shaped hole that's in your heart. And when Jesus came into the world, he lived a sinless life. And he laid down that life in a sinner's death. He took the punishment for every sin of the world. And in so doing, up for grabs is a righteousness that you can't earn and that you and I don't deserve, but that we can freely receive. It's given to us as a gift. And if you don't have that in your heart, you don't know Jesus Christ personally, maybe you say today, you know what? I'm not only lacking vision for the year, I, I don't know where, I, I don't even know anything. I'm lost. Jesus wants to come into your heart and he will. And it's a simple invitation. And I would just ask you if you're here and you want to receive Jesus and say, yes, Lord, come into my life. Would you raise your hand right now? I'm going to have you pray with me. I see a hand up in the front. I see a few hands in the back. I see a bunch in the middle. You just want Jesus. You want to be saved. You're not signing up for a religion. You're signing up for Jesus. You're signing up for heaven. I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer with me, but I'm going to ask the whole church that we all pray this prayer so that no one feels like they're praying alone. Lord God, Please forgive my sins. I ask you to come into my heart. I believe that you died and rose again. And I want you to save me. Please come in. I need your ISAV. I need your clothing. And I want your gold. I want to know what you made me for. So please, Lord, fill me with your spirit. Give my life direction. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you guys praise the Lord with me? Goodness, kindness. May he give you a blessed and hopeful and prosperous new year in him. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so that you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback. So if you would, leave a review in iTunes or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.